Hi, I'm James McGrail, the newest member of the Applied Anthropology Network team. I'm going to be taking over editing, hosting, and publishing the podcast version of AAN events like this one. In this episode, you'll be hearing a presentation from Simon Roberts. Simon is the founder of Stripe Partners, an organization which bridges the gap between business and what happens in the real world. Drawing on his years of ethnographic experience, Simon explains embodied knowledge, the information that is unconsciously picked up by our body for use in every area of our lives. He summarizes some of the key ideas from his book, The Power of Not Thinking. Simon then challenges us to answer the question, how can you make research consultancy more embodied and how do we implement these approaches in the post-lockdown world? Join us as we explore what we can achieve if we stop thinking and start trusting our bodies. If you've not attended an AAN event before, here's Marcus Rothmuller to explain the idea further. Dear friends, my name is Markus Rothmuller, and together with Laura Koitschöber and the amazing team of EASA's Applied Anthropology Network, I am hosting this new event format called AAN Impulses. In each event, we provide you with an impulse of human-centeredness, presented by applied anthropologists to improve the world impulse by impulse by impulse. Each session ends with a challenging or provocative question to spark discussion among the audience and the broadly growing community of applied anthropologists. The AEN impulses are provided by applied clubs, a space for sub-communities and more specific groups of applied anthropologists to meet, exchange knowledge, discuss needs and action items, and to find mentors, friends, and jobs that can support your career as an applied anthropologist on the long run. If you have any suggestions for future impulses, or if you want to learn more about applied clubs, or even open a new club around your favorite topic or field of applied anthropology yourself, reach out to me directly via email or LinkedIn. So if you'd like to join this exciting journey, definitely reach out to Marcus or Laura. At the AAN, there's always an opportunity to be engaged. And now, without further ado, here's Simon Roberts with his impulse titled, Bring Back the Bodies. Reflections on Embodied Knowledge and Communication. So people often ask what the inspiration for writing the book um, uh, was. And and the short answer is a, is a camping trip that um, myself and some colleagues took a team from Duracell on um, back in 2014, um, which in many ways was the first... Um, the first kind of lived attempt, as it were, to, to take the idea of, of embodiment um, and to sort of make it tangible, make it real for a commercial client. Um, and it was a really successful project. And I write a bit more about it in the book. Um, and in many ways, then it's, it's just sort of provided the uh, it's provided a sort of a foundation for a lot of thinking that, that not just me, but my colleagues at Stripe Partners have been doing around why um the body matters in how we we understand um how we understand the world how we understand culture how we understand other people um so that's kind of where it all began um and i suppose i want to start with a sort of a simple observation and i suspect that there's nobody on this call that cannot ride a bike um if you can't ride a bike apologies but um i suspect that most of you can but I also suspect that most of you have no idea how you do it. Um, and you wouldn't be alone because most of um, the world's kind of engineers who've been exploring this idea for well over 100 years, actually, almost since the birth of the first thing that looked like a bicycle, have taken um, uh, many, 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 uh, nearly 100 years to figure out how it is that a, ba a bicycle balances, both when we're on it, um, but also when we're not on it. So in other words, there's kind of huge amounts of physics um, and mechanics involved in the riding of a bicycle. But the interesting thing is that none of that is actually important for anybody riding a bicycle to know, right? So there's a form of knowledge about how to ride a bike, which operates almost completely independently of our practical ability to actually ride a bicycle. And it seems to me, or it's also always seemed to me that this is a really good way of, of encapsulating a difference between what one might call propositional knowledge about the world, knowledge that we can write down, um, that we can make explicit in some ways, whether through equations or words or other means, and a more um, embodied um, form of knowledge, a form of knowledge which is not reliant on 
either explicit understanding of what it is that we're doing and how we're, we're doing it, um, and nor any kind of theoretical kind of uh, elucidation of it. So embodied knowledge, as I kind of describe it in the book, is a form of knowledge which is um, which exists when we've acquired kind of practical understanding and ability, um, either through mere perception, or not mere perception, but, but perception, and also um, through experience. And it's a very interesting form of knowledge because it allows us to do things quite instinctively without thinking, hence the title of the book. And it's a form of knowledge that re resides not in our brains, right, but, but in our bodies, um, and is therefore kind of almost beyond kind of uh, rational or at least conscious control. Um, so we can do a lot of things without thinking about what we're doing. And this is a very different way of thinking about knowledge, right, compared to, um, you know, large sways, not only of Western philosophical tradition, but, um, but other traditions too. Um, and every story needs a sort of a full guy. Um, and Descartes is my full guy. Um, he's the baddie. Um, and I think, you know, it's reasonable to assert that this distinction between mind and body um, uh, emerges um, through through the work of, of Descartes and has, has rippled on through the centuries. And it's a very pervasive way of thinking. Um, it shows up in everyday ways of talking about what we know. Um, you know, we talk about people being brainy um, and it shows up in the education system, we know, which highly privileges intellectual, um, you know, cognitive um, endeavor uh, and education as opposed to more practical um, ways of, of, of engaging or learning about the world. Um, so there's a there's a snobbery, if you will, about about the brain versus the body. But what's also the case is that in a range of disciplines, and I think this is the thing that really fascinated me when researching the book, is a range of disciplines are coming to a shared agreement, if you will, that the bodies are actually central to how we think. Um, and that actually without bodies, we would be really very little. So if you imagine as a thought experiment, a kind of a brain in a vat, what would that brain be able to think about? How would it actually experience the world, um, let alone get around the world? But what would it actually be able to encounter of the world if it was just a brain in a vat? And of course, we're surrounded by brains in vats. They're called computers. And AIs, in a way, are kind of brains in vats, right? Because they don't actually have any material, as it were, engagement with the world themselves. So Henry Marsh is actually a neuroscientist, and I, he's written a lovely book called um, Do No Harm. Um, which is about his adventures in um, neuroscience um, uh, and, and, and neurosurgery um, and a much better book than mine. So take a look at that. But um, anyway, he is just one of many, many people from a range of different disciplines, whether it's cognitive science or philosophy or anthropology um, and indeed um, the field of AI, or at least progressive wings of the AI movement, who's coming to this kind of clear kind of conclusion that we need our bodies in order to think that we can't really think without being embodied but what i try and do in the book is is set up the problem as it were so um and then talk about not necessarily the solution but at least break down into five components this um idea of embodied knowledge and and in one of the first chapters which is about observation i talk really about how we understand the world not merely through our eyes actually so you know Western, the Western world is very brain centric, but it's also very um, ocular centric. Um, but actually observation is, is about full bodied immersion in the world. And, and I use the story of Thomas Thwaites, a British designer who wanted to understand what it was like to be a goat. Um, and he decided if he was gonna understand what it was like to see the world as a goat sees the world, then you've got to become a goat. So here he is on a Swiss mountainside. But the simple point here is that rather than try to understand the world, if you will, rationally in a detached kind of cognitive way, our best understandings of the world come when we are immersed in it. And that's something for an anthropologist. It shouldn't be controversial, perhaps, but it's something that's very much washed out, if you will, of the ways in which we tend to think about how we understand um, the world. It's all about critical distance and detachment and rationality. And so this chapter is really of an argument for saying, no, to understand the world, we've got to go in feet first, um, as Thomas Thwaites did. 
The second kind of feature or quality of embodied knowledge is that um, it is slowly acquired in many ways. We don't learn to ride a bicycle first time around, nor do we learn how to blow glass um, immediately. It's a form of knowledge which is acquired through practice, through repetition. And, and as we acquire a skill, our need, as it were, to depend on rational control of what we're doing uh, um, tapers down. So when you sit in a car and you drive a car or when you ride a bicycle, you're not thinking about what you do, but your body knows what to do. And so I talk in this sort of chapter about how we acquire skills and how we move through from being a kind of a novice to a to a master or an expert. And how as we do that, what what essentially happens is kind of linguistic knowledge. Think of the instructions for how to ride a bike actually kind of get if you will, deprioritized in our in the rankings and actually our bodies can can take over. Another feature of, of embodied knowledge is, is, is its immense ability to allow us to improvise. And, and, and a lot in this chapter, I talk about kind of autonomous vehicles and the, the, the you know, the efforts underway to create um, level five autonomy. Level five autonomy essentially means a car that can drive any any place, anywhere, any conditions. Um, it's as all of the um, autonomous vehicle boosters um, would have had us believe. Elon Musk is about the only person that really thinks it's it's doable, and he does smoke dope. One of the things that separates us from autonomous vehicles is our um, ability, if you will, to be able to operate in circumstances which are very uncertain, um, that unfold in different ways every time we do things. No piece of jazz is ever played the same way. No card ride is ever the same. Circumstances are always changing, but we know how to respond. Um, so improvisation is is really about um, you know, the ways in which embodied knowledge allow us to deal with you know, the manifold uncertainties and ambiguities of the world around us um, and also represent as like a very good contrast to um, the ways in which we often think about how computers understand the world, right? And computers are often, if not always, um, programmed in quite rule-based ways. And the world isn't rule-based. Um, anthropologists are good at explaining the fact that people may describe the world in rule-based ways, but it's it tends not to be rule-based in the ways that um, uh, people uh, tend to describe it to us. I also talk about kind of empathy, which typically kind of emerges in the literature as a kind of um, psychological concept, if you will, right? It's something um, that we come to inhabit psychologically other people's worlds or situations. You know, we, we walk in their shoes, um, but, it's, but the literature often talks about empathy as a kind of state of mind. And in this chapter, I talk a lot more about how the body is central to, um, to, to, to how we gain empathy. Um, there are mechanisms in the brain called mirror neurons, which allow us to understand people's emotions, uh, their feelings, their state, of, their state of mind, if you will, um, uh, purely by being in their presence. So there's a kind of physical substrate to kind of empathy which has often been washed out of, of our accounts of it. Um, and um, this is actually a, a, a scene from a 24 hour uh, simulator, simulation simulator that I went to in Hong Kong when I was researching the book, which is designed to enable kind of uh, people from lots of different walks of life to, to experience the life of a refugee. And I think the, the thing that struck me in, in in participating in this, uh, we often think about kind of teaching people things as sitting them down quietly, um, you know, privileging the mind, you know, I'm going to fill your mind with information about this, these, these other people's circumstances. Um, and this does it sort of quite the opposite way around, if you will, which is it primes the body to receive more formal, propositional, explicit knowledge. Um, by putting the body under, you know, a, a lot of strains, if you will. So, so everything that we went through in in this simulator uh, was essentially a kind of prelude to delivering more factual information. 
um, and it was incredibly effective as a result. And then the final kind of quality or characteristic um, of, of, of embodied knowledge that I talk about is retention. And once upon a time, I lived in India and I used to go to this restaurant um, that served. Many years later, I went back to that restaurant and I was immediately transported back to um, my time doing field work there. The taste of and the smell of the food was uncannily similar to, to how it had tasted and smelled um, 15 years earlier. Um, and, and many of you will know the kind of famous reference from um, from, from Proust book, book um, about the Madeleine and how that transports him back, dipping that in his tea and eating it, transports him back to his childhood. So embodied knowledge is, is knowledge that um, is retained in, in, in ways that are not actually particularly well understood. Um, it's sensory knowledge that uh, stays with us um, and it's also the sort of knowledge that is deeply cultural, right? So a lot of our bodily comportment and our identity is tied up in our in our bodies. So I talk in the book about how soldiers become soldiers through, you know, bodily discipline, if you will, um, you know, and their ways of walking and their ways of holding their bodies are as much a facet of being a soldier as knowing how to pull the trigger on a gun. So, um, so in, in this chapter, I, I explore these kind of elements of, of knowledge that, that stay sedimented or get sedimented in our, in our bodies, if you will. So those are the kind of five principal kind of dimensions that I've, I've chosen to kind of unpick embodied knowledge um, through, uh, through the lens of. And, um, and then what I do in the final set stage of the book is, is kind of is a to say well embodied knowledge is all of those things all of the, at all of the same time as as it were so it's it's not kind of analytically i've distinguished elements of it but actually it it's an aggregate and then i explore how uh, embodied knowledge can be used or is being used in a range of different environments in the world of business in the world of politics and policy making um in the world of sort of design and creativity through activities like body storming and then finally explore the relevance of the ideas of, of, of embodied knowledge or embodiment more generally to the development of AI and robotics where it, it kind of turns out actually that most of the advances the big advances in robotics and artificial intelligence have come from a, a view of the world that looks much more like the embodied view of the world than um, than one might um, previously have have expected. Um, so that's the kind of the book in a nutshell. I've probably taken a, a few more minutes than Mar Marcus wanted me to, but um, that's um, that was going to be it for that section. So I'm I'm sort of open for questions, and then we can, if people don't have any, we can jump on to the next um, to the next leg of the presentation. Hi, just to briefly recap Simon's talk before we head into the Q&A. Simon demonstrated through the example of riding a bike that there are two kinds of knowledge. Propositional knowledge, which is the information we can learn and write down about how a bike stays balanced, and embodied knowledge, which doesn't require explicit rational knowledge. Very few people understand how a bicycle balances, but many people nonetheless can ride a bike. He went on to break down embodied knowledge into five parts. First, observation. Whilst the world is often presented to us as operating based on a set of rules, this often isn't the case. Understanding our world from someone else's perspective requires full-body immersion. He pointed to Thomas Thwaites, who became a goat in order to understand them better. I would also recommend Being a Beast by Charles Foster, which explores the same idea. Practice. Embodied knowledge is acquired through repetition. The more we repeat an action, the less reliant we become on linguistic knowledge. Think of something you do every day, like making coffee in the morning, that's so automatic you almost forget you did it. Repetition of the action means we can go almost into autopilot. Speaking of autopilot, it's also this embodied knowledge that separates us from AI. 
we are able to use our embodied knowledge to improvise in novel situations. Think of driving in the rain or when someone does something unexpected on the road. That's something that autonomous cars may never be able to do. Empathy. Empathy is also something that is rooted in embodied knowledge. Mirror neurons allow us to understand the emotions of others just by being in their presence. Knowing that might open up other avenues for learning through experience. Finally, retention. Perhaps the part of embodied knowledge with which we are all most familiar. This is the feeling of being transported back to a different time or place by a smell or taste. To quote Proust, No sooner had the warm liquid mixed with the crumbs touched my palate than a shudder ran through me and I stopped, intent upon the extraordinary thing that was happening to me. For Proust, it was Madeleine's which took him back to his childhood. For Simon, it was Indian food taking him back to his time researching in India. Either way, we're all acquainted with the power of these memories. As Simon put it, embodiment is all these forms of knowledge happening at the same time. We often prioritise propositional knowledge, but perhaps we should challenge ourselves to consider embodiment more often. Simon's book goes on to explore the ways embodiment is being used in business, politics and policymaking. Now back to Simon with the Q&A. Simon, thank you so much. Um, Really fascinating and uh, really exciting also that uh, um, we have that example of... um, bringing the body back in into the inquiry into the world um on the last point that you made about your collaboration with uh robotics and uh, ai i was wondering how um do you think the developments in virtual reality are going to change our experiment experience of of embodiment um or will they um yeah I should probably move on to my next slide. We're actually doing a project on collaboration and uh, in the context of work and and VR at the moment, actually. So this is from my colleagues who have been dog feeding um, a a VR um, app. Um, I think it's a really good it's a really good question. I think there is um, there is quite an interesting and significant body of work being done which shows quite clearly that the experiences we have in virtual reality are are quite visceral. They're quite embodied. In other words, you know, when you're wearing a mask, you can stand on top of a a virtual skyscraper and look over the edge and actually feel an emotion, right? Um, And and feel an emotion that you probably wouldn't feel um, looking at a a sort of two-dimensional video of the same scene. Um, and there's been some interesting studies around, um, I know, a virtual tour of an American abattoir um, and what that led, um, well, how it led to people not eating meat, um, having been through the virtual abattoir. So I think, although I wouldn't necessarily cast myself as the biggest um, booster of VR, I, I, I'm not utterly convinced Um that it's going to be the sort of the next big thing. I do think it it's very consistent. What people are finding about it is it's quite consistent with this notion of embodiment that actually we can feel like we're part of things. We can do things in a in a mask like you know whiteboarding or post-it noting that feel much closer to to what we're missing when we when we try to do them on a mirror board. Um, or a mural board, for example. So I think there's hope um, and and promise, and I think there's and I think it's a good demonstration of of why we should take the idea of embodiment seriously. Hi, Simon. Nice Hi, to see Martin. you. Um, I love I love I love this. I've started to get into your book. Thanks very much for one thing, which you mentioned sort of as you went through the, the main points, which was um, how we know some things by being in the same space and of course mm. you know we've we've been working from home with our colleagues across the world for a year now yeah. many of us have and um and of course it's one of the big questions that um that various of the global business are trying to solve how to um how, how can you work in the future together and i remember when when i first started working for a large corporation i 
I wondered how can you do like global requirements gathering? How can you connect between those between those moments when you are not able to be together? And um, I'm curious of what do you think we're losing? What is what is not replica replicable at all? What, what do we need to tell those guys who are trying to develop not just the Elon Musk's of the, you know, the virtual experiences or the digital experiences of the things that we can't do ever? Um, not just get close to or kind of try to help because that's the situation, but what's the things we, we're just not going to be able Can't to do? do. Um, well, you've, you've kind of, you've, you, you've set up the second second half of the presentation. I'll pick on one thing that I think um, can't be done. And, and actually it's something I talk about in the book, which is, you know, um, I talk about a minaret craftsmen in, in Yemen um, and the apprentices who learn how to, how to, um, do very ornate work on minarets um, purely by observation, right? And Aristotle said that humans learn through mimesis more than any other animal. Humans learn through mimesis through copying, and so actually, I think one of the big challenges for uh, certainly for a remote world, but increasingly, I think for a hybrid world, the hybrid world that you know certainly my business is planning to to be um, uh, to be operating in. Um, is how do, how do younger people acquire um, the sorts of skills that many of us might use every day, right? Um, and, and many of these things are not easily explicable, right? You know, how do we learn how to ride a bike? You know, our dad pushes us on one and says, pedal, and we do, right? And we, we learn through through that way. So we learn through doing, but we also learn through through mimesis. And, and I think that's gonna be a real challenge. I think how, skill gets acquired in a remote world, um, particularly in an industry, and I'm making a generalization or at least an assumption here, but you know, we work in, in an industry, or I feel like I work in an industry where a lot of how we do what we do is not documented, right? It's, you know, we're not accountants. We don't do exams for three years and then say, right, I'm trained to, to do an audit of a company. You know, I'm, I, I don't mind saying that a lot of what we do is completely made up right and we make it up sometimes every time we do it because we learn how to do it better so how you learn a skill in that world i don't know so i think that's a big challenge and why we need to kind of get back to the office frankly thank you simon thank you everyone uh i've uh, read your book here it is it's uh oh, it's a lovely no, it's a lovely book thank you uh my question is very simple uh the book was um written before the current crisis so yeah. if if you wrote it today after the crisis would it be different would you change something or would you even emphasize something more yeah if i'd written it before the crisis i could have gone into the bloody bookshops it would have been so much better and i could have had a proper launch party um it's a really good question how how would it have been different I think almost I would have made the argument even stronger. I mean, I think in a way, right, it, the, the the principal story for me of COVID is it's shone a bright light on lots of lots of things. Indeed, lots of things that you know we need to have a light shone on, like inequality or um, uh, you know which workers actually matter and which workers really don't add much value to our lives but get paid huge amounts of money. So um, I think the thing that it has you know, it, it has shone a light on for me is there are, as I would put it, many virtues of a virtual life. Um, you know, all of this stuff is wonderful. I'm going to talk about that in a sec. But um, I think what it has reminded us is that physical connection, you know, a hug or, you know, a cup of tea together, whatever it is, there is something irredeemably important and human about that and no amount of great technology and virtual reality masks will ever um ever and i can say that with such confidence and conviction will ever um, replace uh, what we get when we're together so i think i in a way i'd have just turn the dial up to 11 um, on the argument, if that makes sense. And I'd have probably written a chapter about work. Um, hello, Simon. Uh, many thanks for the for the talk. I also have the book lying next to me. It's uh, <laughs> I'm about one, two thirds through it. Um, I have a very, um, maybe a bit more complicated question that, you know, reflects a little bit on that, th on the themes being exposed yeah. here. Um, 
I cannot think but about the ramifications of consciousness. And sometimes I think that, you know, in order for us to do something conscious, it seems that we will be able to reflect on, on something like um, you said, it's a form of declarative memory. And then I wonder in that sense, I don't know if you've given any thought on it, but it might seem as if consciousness is something collective always. I don't know if you share that thought or, at, or are we just using the word consciousness in more of a manner of speaking and maybe not in the very substantial way that is consciousness? Yeah. Oh God, I think that's a good, very hard question. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd certainly, I mean, I think it, it, it links back, I mean, slightly going to dodge the question, but I think it links back to the previous point, actually, which is that, um, you know, I do think the nature of our, the nature of reality is often that it's a shared reality, right? And I think some of the things that I explore in the book, like, um, like the idea of mirror neurons, which although, you know, obviously in, in the neurons in the brain, but um, they allow us to understand other people that we're in, you know, in, in, in proximity to. And in that sense, I think, you know, it's not so difficult to argue that consciousness in that way is kind of collective. Um, you know, and I'll talk about mood. I think mood is something that's very physical. Um, you know, we don't, we, we create and communicate mood through our bodies. Um, and so I don't know whether that, that, that is evading your question, but I, I think, you know, there is a very collective nature to our experience. And I think, again, what COVID has shown us is that sort of self-isolating at home individually and just using Zoom is not quite, is not quite the same thing, you know, just sitting opposite somebody and drinking a cup of coffee with them as does something that um, a coffee over Zoom will never do. So Simon Roberts, I wanted to ask, so I, I read your, your little post on um, co-living spaces being a liminal space, right? For transformation, for example, um, running through a journey or it's kind of part of your journey in life. And I wonder how is being in the same room with your whole innovation team or whole colleagues, also some sort of ritual or liminal space in your perspective. Can I, maybe, can we ask, can we talk about that when I go through the next bit? Can I go through the next bit? Because so Sounds many of good. the questions seem to be sort of hovering on this question. Um, would all that right. be all right? Then, yeah, yeah, then go for it, Simon. Shall I, shall I just crack on? Yeah. Um, so like, like I said, I mean, this is a bit of a sort of, a bit of a thought experiment so it's not not fully formed but yeah i think it's kind of an obvious thing to say but it's worth you know and we're doing it right now right our present life is kind of um and that's wonderful isn't it and we, we can all be here across the globe together um and this guy who's a um, academic at INSEAD in paris i think he had a a beautiful way of, of putting it right which is um you know what we're suffering from is the kind of uh, the absence of presence and the presence of absence yeah he really kind of gets at the heart of like what's what what we're all feeling right um in or have been feeling over the last year yeah living life in in rectangles and and the bit that's really obvious for me that's missing in all of this is the body and and you know there are four kind of four things that kind of keep keep coming up with to me i mean whatever you think of boris johnson you know he's not very good when he hasn't got a lot of his own mps behind him you know cheering him on right so there's something about the mood that he needs in order to be the sort of buffoon that he is um you know, classical music concerts or any concerts, frankly, you know, are, you know, a, a fraction of what they were really about um, without um, resonating bodies within a concert hall. You know, a football stadium, you know, what, what, are, what are the sports broadcasters do at the moment? They're piping crowd music in, right? Because otherwise, what do you feel? You feel nothing, even, you know, as a spectator, sitting on your sofa watching a game of football without some sense of, of bodies there there's nothing and then this um uh, quiz show 
comedy show in 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 the UK, um, which again is it's just like nothing without having kind of four very funny people um, bantering with each other and being and 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 building off each other's um, jokes. So four very obvious for me domains where as soon as you take the body out of the picture, something is just sadly um, and obviously missing. So this made me, and this is a bit of a detour, so kind of bear with me, but um, I don't know whether any of you are familiar with a guy called Claude Shannon. Um, he's um, a genius. Um, he worked at Bell Labs um, in the sort of 50s and 60s. And if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be here today. Um, we wouldn't be here on in our rectangles. Um, because what he did was essentially create a universal model of communication, um, which nobody has bettered. It's kind of basically, this is it. This is a model of communication. You do not need another one. This is it. Um, which sounds like a grand claim to make, um, but it's a claim that is very easy to make. Um, and this is from his master's thesis and is probably one of the most significant scientific publications of the 20th century. And without it, nothing, none of the digital world as we know it would exist, right? And one of the things he was really interested in trying to do with that, um, with his theory of, of, of communication was understand information better, right? And he made what, um, you know, he did this really clever thing where he sort of jammed kind of Bayesian logic and Boolean logic into into a view of, of communication and information theory. Um, and really what he was talking about was the fact that information is about reducing uncertainty, right? So, you know, where we kind of, you know, the richest, as it were, informationally the richest messages are the ones that reduce uncertainty the greatest amount. Okay, so really quite kind of very complex, um, very complex ideas in many ways. But, but what he was able to do with that was to say, actually, if that's the case, let's look at language. And when we look at language, what we discover is that language isn't actually um, random. Language actually, there's a lot of probability in language. In other words, the occurrence of words of letters next to each other is not random at all in languages. You know, you can prob probabilistically um, uh, uh, determine, as it were, what is likely to come after a T. You know, code breaking is all about trying to find these relationships between letters. So as I demonstrate, hopefully with this, you know, you know exactly what's being said here, right? Um, even though I've missed a lot of it out. Now you're probably saying, well, what on earth is Simon talking about and what relationship has this got to anything? Well, the point is that once he discovered or proved this, right, he was able to say, well, now we can, we can do kind of, we can do digital communication, right? Because I don't need to send everything down a wire. I can send, I can compress things. So the whole way that we communicate these days is essentially by stripping stuff out in order to, to send it down a pipe, right? Um, which, which makes the world that we live in possible. So without his kind of theory, we'd just, we'd still be using, you know, sort of tin can with a piece of string, pretty much. We wouldn't, but anyway. So, what strikes me as interesting about that is that as ever, you know, we make our tools as humans, right? But they in turn, of course, they make us, they shape us. So what we've kind of done is we've taken Claude Shannon's kind of masterpiece of thinking and all of the implications, which mean the digital world is and the digital communication that we all enjoy is possible. But what it's done is essentially kind of transform the very way as humans we we communicate with each other. So we don't pass zero. Well, we do pass zeros and ones between each other, and we're doing so now. Um, but and we we can communicate in very nuanced ways by passing zeros and ones between each other. Um, but what it does do, of course, is by enabling this form of communication, it it has shaped the world that we live in. It's shaped our lives. It's shaped how we communicate um, in quite important ways. Um, so 
if you go back to his kind of claim that messages that resolve the greatest amount of uncertainty are the richest in information, you have to say when you're in an environment like this, yes, we're exchanging zeros and ones, but we're also trying to exchange other things, right? Because I'm trying to think, well, what are these people that are looking at me actually thinking? Do they think I'm mad? You know, are they waiting for me to get to the end? Do they want a cup of tea? Are they bored? Yeah, you know, I don't know any of these things. I know a lot about what you look like from, from the screens that I see in front of me, but I don't know much else. So in other words, much of the communication tools that we have are basically leaving lots on the table. And of course, what they're leaving on the table is what our bodies are really good at picking up for us, right? Often without thinking. So, so I think there are kind of at least four and there are probably other ways. So this is a kind of, you know, and if I'd written, written the book again, you know, maybe I'd have, I'd have talked a bit more about some of this, but I think, I think our bodies are really crucial to how we generate, generate meaning and understanding, share meaning and understanding communicate at, at the end of the day and so you know one of those ways is that our bodies obviously do huge amounts of talking for us right um you know the sort of simple level what we wear and our adornments you know the jewelry that we wear or whatever it is they signal huge amounts of things about us but it's also the case that you know the mere act of using our hands to communicate um arguably you know according to some psychologists is absolutely critical for how we even articulate. So if we weren't able to use our hands, we would find it very difficult to communicate. So actually there are people who are deaf and they use their hands, right? So people who are blind, they use their hands. So they're not actually meaningfully, they're not doing anything with them, but they need to do, well, rather they are doing something with them. They couldn't communicate without using their hands. So our bodies do talk in very kind of obvious, um, and important ways are absolutely crucial to how we articulate ideas. The other bit, I suppose, that bodies do is they quite obviously signal for us. Um, so they they represent kind of real estate, if you will, um, that locate us socially, um, culturally, um, and and in other ways. Um, so and they signal attention. Um, and how available we are, um, and whether we're engaged, whether we're bored. Um, the other thing, as I've touched on, is that bodies allow us to create and understand other people's moods. So um, what is becoming kind of very clear um, in the field of kind of embodied cognition and also the growing field of embodied communication um, is that mood is not just a psychological state it's a bodily state and it transfers from from people to people through the body um and that collectively as we start to share each other's moods um you know we kind of almost reside in them we resonate other people's moods resonate within us so um you know, resonation or um resonate re lots of lots of things in nature resonate um, you know, fireflies resonate with each other, they entrain, organ pipes um, entrain with each other, bodies kind of entrain with each other, you know, and a good example of that is yawning, you know, it makes us feel tired, and we often do it ourselves, right, and then we, you know, we feel tired because we yawn, we don't often yawn because we're tired, so, um, so anyway, body's central to that kind of notion of, of or uh, element of communication. Um, and fi <clears throat> finally, our bodies place us. So how we locate ourselves in a room, imagine a drinks party or something going on in the office, actually being able to move our bodies through physical space allows us to participate or disengage from conversation. It allows us to to grab people for a, for a quick chat. It allows us to move into a conversation that interests us or move away from one that's boring us, right? And it allows us to pick up things that are not necessarily in our central field of view or field of, of hearing um, and, and pick up. So, um, so for me, I think there's, there's at least four ways and probably more, and there's probably a better way of categorizing them than the way I've done at the moment. Um, but I think that spatial kind of dimension of, um, of, of, of what bodies, of the role that bodies play in communication is, um, 
is not necessarily um is not necessarily appreciated enough but what what has struck me as interesting is how many um services like the online.town have come come along right which allows you to move your avatar through a virtual office and kind of move it to the kitchen and start talking to people there a very poor simulacrum of of what it's really like to be in an office but a way that i think a tool or a software platform that demonstrates some of what the kind of the placing of bodies is actually all about right and in terms of our ability to to engage or or, in, or disengage from from communication um so that's as I said, a slightly kind of mad kind of trip through, um, you know, uh, Claude Shannon theory of communication and the body. I don't know whether any of it actually makes sense, um, but it just struck me as kind of an interesting way of trying to um, frame, you know, the current moment and, you know, our, our obvious reliance on tools and, and what we all, I think, recognize is missing somewhere in these tools, wonderful though they are in their own ways. So the question is, how can you make your research consultancy work more embodied and how might you do that in the post lockdown world? Okay, everyone, everyone is back. Um, I think we had some lovely discussions and very interesting. I, I know that for a fact that Inga was just uh, cut short. Um, I hope everyone has one person that can quickly summarize the discussion. And then I think we will have to also um, finalize today's session and 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 the, the whole thing okay so um who wants to summarize uh, who's the the summarizer of the group with laura martin and simon and so on and i was i was unanimously chosen by all others to do this so i can do that <laughs> um so we just we discussed um a lot around the fact of what makes things more embodied and and, and uh, we felt the experiences we had when we took clients or colleagues into the field was always something which was very strong and very lasting um, in the way how, how um, uh, Simon had mentioned as well. So one of the things we try to think of, of what we can do once once we can go back to the office or, or, or meeting our, our clients and colleagues is to really think of where these where these moments are where we can make that easy for people to to experience that. Uh, we, we've, we've all experienced that once we took a colleague along to the field or to a research session it was a whole lot easier to, to do so again. Um, so is there ways of how we could represent that in a form so that it's, it's easy for them to step out of that, just send me the TLDR, um, uh, and, and really to kind of make, make us aware and find ways where we can bring that rich context that you, that you get um, from your body senses in, in, in a different form into the work that we do. Uh, we had lots of examples, but I'll stop here so someone else can talk as well. Uh, I did hear all the answers of my group. I don't know if I'm able to summarize because a lot of things were said that were new to me. Um, however, the thing that stood out to me was maybe that you should really include, of course, the rich context um, of the participant. Um, and by doing this, well, we have to to do a lot of online interviews and I try to do like um, do online research using like um, data and other other forms of information about the context of the participant and I I'm sure the other group members can add uh, a lot of things to this so maybe invite them yeah sure I, I mean Oh, I just think I think we're just talking about making it making embodied knowledge explicit in the language we use, both in the scoping process and 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 in the and in the research that we're doing. So you want to make sure that you know th those inputs are things that are made explicit, and and you reference the data that sort of comes in in a way that isn't purely reflective and cerebral. And then, and then Inga, I'll pass to her. She was talking about sort of eliciting embodied knowledge from from clients in the in the beginning of the process. Inga, do you want to add to that? Here I am. Yes, I found my unmute button. The embodied, not the, the process that I think of as, as really critical is the framing of the client question. And once that's 
as we start out assuming that we share the same framing of a question, if we step back and use the embodied approach to decipher and deconstruct what the assumptions are. I think that's a very strong idea that I hadn't considered before. But clearly the um, assumptions are built on those non-conscious, non-aware, non-programmed kinds of movements and, and um, learning procedures and so on. So to find out how did you know that, to find out um, what is that material like, uh, to find out what did you expect, but to do it in a much more embodied fashion. Through, and I wonder about role playing in that situation too. That, that's about where I was thinking, this is a new way of understanding for me, so it's maybe not that clearly stated. Bodied at the moment, that's better. Yeah, um, of yeah I think one of the really, you know, uh, kind of goes without saying, but a difficult thing about writing a book about knowledge that doesn't really have, um, is not associated with words. Um, you know, and I, I think a lot of this is, you know, this point about what do clients know or how do we frame, you know, what we think they know. Um, in one of the bits of the book, I talk about this exercise, you know, or activity called body storming, which is definitely worth kind of thinking about. Um, and it's both good for kind of acting out ideas or acting out prototypes, product services, kind of prototypes. Um, actually, what's really fascinating about it is what it reveals about what we think about things. Um, and, and I think it's really useful in a client context to kind of have people kind of act out scenarios of how a thing that they've come up with my may or may not work um because what it reveals to them quite quickly is kind of like how jagged an experience that might be for one of their users or like how silly the idea is or or actually how natural it feels so um there's something here about just trying to get it um you know at an embodied knowledge which by definition you know does not announce itself right it doesn't articulate itself it doesn't it doesn't come neatly. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't lend itself to being articulated. And Bourdieu is kind of like, like says a lot about this, right? Which is a, a lot of this stuff just doesn't have to announce. It doesn't have to say. Um, it doesn't have to announce itself. It doesn't have to um, because it's taken for granted. And this is the the fundamental, I think, with fundamental aspect of, of embodied knowledge that it is utterly taken for granted. Um, so finding ways of prizing it out of people um, beyond just interviewing people. Um, because as Polanyi says, you know, we know much more than we can tell. Um, and that's, that's the fundamental challenge we all face as researchers. Yeah, so in our group, we basically talks about how when one is working in a tech company, it's really hard to explain the thought of embodied research and thinking to engineers who doesn't have this similar thoughts and process of thinking. Um, so one question we have is how to define a rational or rationalization or how, how to actually define that to the engineers when you are working with them, especially in large corporations and such. And then another conclusion we come up with is that education is very important when it comes to narrowing the gap between engineers and people who are doing non-tech. Yeah, so that's what we come up with. Mm -hmm. Simon, do you wanna follow up on that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it's very easy to kind of characterize kind of tech people and non-tech people, isn't it? And I, you know, there's a certain sense in it because I think, um, you know, I think we, you know, we do all understand that, you know, I think it makes sense at some level to say that, you know, people that build software, you know, are are having to kind of, operate with a view of the world or at least are trying to to take a vision of the world and, and reduce it to lines of of code i think you know over my career the you know the most powerful way of of getting 
of getting people to see what the world looks like is not done through kind of communicating at them. It's having them experience it. And I think, you know, something that Martin and Laura and I'm sorry, I can't see the other name um, talked about was, you know, perhaps something I didn't really articulate very well about the Shannon, sort of Claude Shannon's point, which is that, you know, his point is about efficiency of communication, right? So, you know, if you work at Facebook, everything's about the too long didn't read, the TLDR, and, and that's all about efficiency of communication. And it's very hard to make the case for inefficient communication, right? Which is often the case that I'm trying to make to people, which is I need your team to come with me to somewhere in America for a week, right? And that's gonna be worthwhile. Oh, no, 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 why didn't you just send me the TLDR? Well, no, that's not really the point. So. You know, the argument that we've been trying to make at Stripe Partners for the last seven years is, is basically give us your team, let us take, take them into the world. Yes, it, in some ways it is extravagant and certainly post-COVID and, you know, our carbon footprint is not, not particularly great. But, you know, there is something wonderful about the inefficiency of it, right? And, and not only because you can experience it for yourself, but there are a whole load of second order benefits of that way of working. Because actually it means a team is out of the office together, a team is together, they're co-located together, they're talking and focusing and thinking about something together in a concentrated way. So, you know, we built our business, our practice around this idea that, you know, in a sense, you know, there is a virtue in this somewhat extravagant um, way of, of learning about the world. Um, and to the point about retention, and, and I think Martin, you spoke to this, is, People remember it, you know, engineers, product managers, they will remember an instance, a thing, an experience they had, and they will never forget it, right? And, and that's what's really important, I think, is it's very easy to forget, like, what are the 10 longest rivers in the world? I haven't got a clue. I was probably told once, I probably had to learn it, but I've forgotten. I'll never forget how to ride a bike or change a light bulb or scramble an egg. Right. And I think an engineer who has that experience and won't forget it, that will live on for a long, long time and will shape the way that they think about the code that they write, the products they design. So it's hard to make this argument in uber rational organizations, particularly ones that are trying to save money. Um, but I think there is a case to be made. It's a long term case. It's a cultural case. It's about cultural change as much as anything. Um, um, but uh, it needs good economic tailwinds rather than economic headwinds to make that case in my experience. Uh, yeah, so um, there's like a host of different ideas being passed and being deliberated in our very, uh, in our 10 minutes. But um, one of the um, things that have been pitched at that, you know, were highlighted is that participant observation really needs drastically needs reinvention. We need new ways to communicate embodiment and thus we need new methods to make it uh, more concrete. And I think bodily concreteness is perhaps uh, the baseline of this entire um, of this entire presentation, both on behalf of Simon Roberts and what everyone has been using on. So let me deviate from that baseline and say that um, the reason why, for instance, bodily concreteness is, for instance, not really achieved is, for instance, because um, the body is come, has become more privatized. We just have like this half profile, so to speak. It's straightforward and um, it's it mediates communication in an unforeseen way. I mean, there is, of course, ways to um, get to this point of vicarious existence, but it is definitely a, much more of a challenge than we have been using on methods in team and in in, in, in in you know in team connection and in team uh, i say that in the context of, of, of teams and, and stuff like that and also um for instance how in the company itself this embodiment is um more a ritual instead of an institutionalized methodological approach because you know we have mindfulness for instance in, in companies and they say okay go to this room and do this exercise and you have the power of suggestion through medicalized language good but what about institutionalizing it and using it as an actually actual modus operandi for instance um i mean it's 
actually what we have to do to make it more embodied in a way is just being ethnographers because that is what we do at heart it's using our body as a tool it's you know our primal movers so to speak the, the way that we resonate with most the way that we recollect knowledge i don't know if anyone of my team wants to step in i think i left some things behind here i i, I mean if i can i i jump in and say i think you know the the the, the thing that 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 strike partners we've been trying to do for a long time is to say and not always succeeding by the way um but I think participant observation in the context of commercial kind of anthropology, business ethnography, whatever you want to call it, you know, got watered down somewhat into being two or three hour interviews, but they just happen to be in somebody else's house, right, rather than in a in an office or a focus group facility. And and so the thing that we've always tried to do is say, no, you know, like, how do we continue to push against that kind of you know, trend of, of kind of making, you know, business anthropology about kind of two or three hour interviews and not much else. You know, no, we need to try and push harder and harder to always make things as embodied as possible, not just for the for the research, for the researcher and the research participant, but also for those that attend as well. I think the real challenge in the world of kind of COVID was, you know, there were plenty of advantages of being able to do, you know, Zoom interviews and stuff, but what it's done is further kind of give weight to this idea that kind of ethnography can just be an interview, right? Or at best an interview with a, a few exercises on a mural board or something like that. So I think personally, I think, you, you know, as a business, we're really looking forward to like redoubling our efforts and saying like, you know, we were saying like, it needs to be embodied, we really mean it. And now, you know, we really need to get back to that. Um, you know, so I think it's given unfortunate weight to a trend that was already there, which is reducing ethnography in this kind of commercial space to to interviews. And uh, we need to take up the fight again <laughs> with my book in hand this time. Can I add something uh, mm. to this? Um, yeah, but if we are doing uh, our research uh, among, uh, for for example, professionals, um, as I do, uh, virtual is their everyday reality. So if they have their meetings like daily stand up online, so um, I believe that we can observe it and conduct participant um, observation. Uh, even though it was the reality uh, before COVID. So I believe that if we have this reflection, uh, what we're doing, and we know that it's not just, you know, that I'm at someone's home or office, it's possible somehow, you yeah. know, it's better to do it like this now than nothing. <laughs> Well, it's certainly better than nothing. And I think if, if I took your point correctly, which is if if people's working reality is 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 Zoom stand ups and neural workshops, then um, then absolutely, you know, if you want to understand how the tiger hunts go to the jungle, not the zoo. So I think that's absolutely right. You know, go where people are. And if that is their reality, then 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 that's what you should do. But I think if your research, you know, is about a different kind of more embodied reality you know you want to understand I don't know, pick the world of secondhand car buying or something in you know on 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 in physical spaces um i suspect that you probably want to do that in physical spaces so i think it's it's certainly the case that if you're trying to understand how organizations collaborate create communicate and and digital tools are central to that then then meet people where they're at um but I think um, there are pretty significant chunks of life that are still not virtual, thankfully. Um, so we need to go there. Very interesting. Um, I know for a fact that we have some leaders of the um, Applied Club for Digital Methods and Remote Research here. So I think there is an interesting uh, or challenging thought that we have to take with us here and, and, and also think about how does this embodiment um, get reflected on in this kind of special applied club on digital methods. And the other point is, I guess, 
how I mean, obviously being in the same room, but also being in the same virtual space. Is there some sort of virtual embodiment there that we can research with a digital method, methods approach then? It sort of depends, I think, on the, the faculties of this expression. It can be um, that, you know, flow from, emanate from the body and that we can make articulate. And actually there have been, there are some ways to um, render, you know, embodiments intelligible through symbols like Leibniz script or Leibniz, I don't know how do you put the stress. But there is one anthropologist that uses, her name is Brenda Fernell, and she has been working on dynamically embodied discursive practices. Basically how, for instance, we create meaning through movements. And if we are, for instance, able to transcribe that, our movements can have a um, linear uh, shape and maybe we can try to make it understandable. But on the other hand, of course, it's, it's missing a lot of those faculties of actually being able to render things intelligible the way that, you know, Simon has described it in his book and the way that, you know, we are used to as field as, as people in the field. So um, I think it's a, a question of trying to vivify whatever um, we see or whatever people, we make people do either through collaborative exercises, like for instance, there is a lot of empathy in drawing together. Um, you can use a mirror boards and um, the fact that there's shared laughter because we <laughs> simply um, fail at drawing with our mouse pads that can elicit some reactions that are maybe viscerally and vicariously felt. But that's just a, an idle thought, I think. Great. Um, thanks, Simon Provost, in this case. Um, thanks so much, Simon Roberts, also for being here with us tonight and staying so long. We have already, again, reached one and a half hours. We are always actually getting there. Um, I think that was a final good discussion with a lot of interesting points. Um, really happy that we did this and happy that all of you joined. Thank you for watching this Impulse. We hope you'll join us next time when our speaker is Kevin Etragi. Remember to subscribe to keep up to date with all our events.